Maria, welcome to First Up. This is Rapa. That is Wednesday, the 30th of November. Cornathan Rarere Aho. Coming up, the protests continue over COVID restrictions in China. So we go to Hong Kong shortly. Also, the Soccer Football World Cup continues. We'll go to Doha for the latest there. Also, field days. Good to have you back. Field Days returns after 17 months to Mystery Creek. We're going to hear from the Golden Pliers singles champion who will be with us live. And 21 security cameras, a fog cannon, a lattice wire, two cages and metre high bollards outside. We go inside what could be New Zealand's most secure dairy. I have roller doors, bollards and have you seen my security inside? All caging and a till being bolted everywhere. So uh, this sort of thing we got to do to uh, save our life. Yes, kia ora koutou. Thank you for joining us here at First Up on the last of November. Joining us uh, from the centre of the soccer football world right now is our correspondent. It's Alex Beard in Qatar. Salam alaikum. Uh, Alex, how are you? Welcome, Salam, Nathan. I'm good. <laughs> I'm, I'm just wondering, with Qatar actually eliminated from the tournament, do the locals still care or have they done a New Zealand? Yeah, it's a bit less than ideal, isn't it? <laughs> They're not... They're not quite doing in New Zealand because just holding the FIFA World Cup here has been a huge deal for Qatar. We've, we've spoken about this before. It's the first in the Middle East, the first World Cup in an Arab nation, the first World Cup in a Muslim-majority nation. So it's still, for the Qataris, a very important moment in terms of how historic it is, even outside of the actual football playing. Are there still look at the, the you know the uh, I, I did see there were a, a few teething difficulties with the tent cities and also I think perhaps the outdoor viewing areas where overseas fans just had to change their expectations and stuff. Has everyone reached a, a, a happy equilibrium on how to behave out there publicly? Yeah, so I think they actually have. Now, I've been out to a couple of, of these events. I even went to, they had David Getter, the French international DJ here the other day. And I actually spoke to a number of footy fans, football fans who are in the country. I spoke to a, a large group of Australians, actually, and they said they were all really surprised by how good it all was. You know, um, people, I went, as I said, I went to a festival the other day and it was like when you would get back home, which in my mind a few years ago was kind of unthinkable and being in this country. And I think you're really seeing some some changes here. You're seeing people having a good time. Um, and I think a lot of the criticism around expectations for especially Western fans coming here, I think have actually proved fairly unfounded because we're primarily seeing people here for the love of football, people realising that you can do a lot of the stuff you can do at home, albeit maybe only in, a, in, in particular areas rather than running right everywhere. But on the whole, it seems like people are having a good time. Yeah, I mean, I saw a footage of English and Welsh fans in a huge brawl in Tenerife when they were all drunk, and I thought, eh, maybe being at a place where that without the drinking isn't too bad as far as football goes. But let's uh, let's switch to other things there. Well, I just want to ask you here about Turkey. So Turkey ramping up its clash with the Kurds there on the southern border. What is the latest there? Yeah, so this is an interesting one. Now, this has been going on for a long time. Turkey has also always had issues with uh, Kurdish groups, especially a lot of Kurdish groups have carried out terror attacks in Turkey. We've just seen the latest one last month, actually sorry, earlier this month in Istanbul. We had a number of people killed in one of the busiest avenues in central Istanbul. And Turkey, basically, President Erdogan has responded, responded to this by saying, you know, enough is enough. A lot of these attacks are centred and coming from um, northern Syria, where Kurdish groups were fighting originally against the Islamic State. 
and have effectively got control of a number of areas. And um, Turkey has said, well, we are going to, we're going to start carrying out strikes on, on this area of northern Syria. And President Erdogan, although this hasn't happened yet, has said he is determined to create a 30-kilometer deep security corridor along its border with Syria. So basically pushing into Syria, and, and bear in mind, this isn't an area that is controlled by the Syrian government. This is an area where bits are already controlled by Turkey, other bits by Kurdish groups, other bits by Syrian democratic forces. It's a patchwork of control. Um, this hasn't actually happened yet, but we're all widely expecting there to be some kind of ground offensive. It's interesting because, for instance, NATO, the US, they've been really careful to criticize moves like this because Turkey has often argued that there aren't many countries in the world where on your very, very border, you have groups planning to carry out terror attacks and you don't do anything. So I think the US especially has come out and said, hey, we don't want any issues of security in Syria, but hasn't gone so far as to say, don't do this, because I think there's some kind of understanding that, you know, if, if, if Turkey has said this too, if there was a border with uh, Europe, where there were terror groups just on the other side of the border planning attacks, Europe would do something about it. So it'll be interesting to see what what kind of uh, nature this ground offensive will take if Turkey does go that route, but it seems like it's highly possible. Um, why is the UN sending a mission into Iran? Yeah, so the UN Human Rights Council has voted to set up a fact-finding mission to investigate the deadly crackdown on the protests that have spun out for more than two months now. Um, following the death of Massa Armenia, a 22-year-old Kurdish woman uh, in the custody of the morality police for not wearing her hijab correctly. We've been hearing about these protests for weeks and weeks and weeks. Now, they won't be sending it to Iran because Iran has said, we're not going to let anyone in. We're not going to get involved with this investigation. We don't recognize this investigation. You know, this is coming from a regime who has come out today, actually, and said, oh, we applaud the secure, our security forces. We applaud uh, the way... Um, Everything is being handled. Actually, they admitted for the first time today, this is the first time we've heard from the regime that people have died. They've admitted around 300 protesters have died. But most observer groups outside of Iran agree that that number is far higher. We're having death sentences now being carried out for several protesters. Well over 15,000 people arrested. Um, I think the United Nations is trying to send a powerful message to Iran saying, hey, you can't continue acting like this. Because these protesters are fighting for, as they say, women, life, freedom. They're fighting for women's rights. They're fighting for the right to be alive and for the right to have some sort of freedom in their own country. But the Iranian regime, week after week, we're seeing them cracking down harder and harder on these protests. More and more are popping up. Um, but they're not giving anything to protesters. There's no reason for protesters to stop because nothing has changed. Um, so hopefully this uh, human rights Council, this, this this UN investigation will lead to something, but it'd be pretty hard if they can't even get in there in the first place. Yeah, Alex, thank you very much for your time, sir. Out of Qatar, that is Alex Beard. 12 and a half past five. You're listening to First Up here at RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. Thank you very much for stopping by and bringing your ears along. Um, it's been quite difficult to travel over the past few years, obviously. And I know that some people have actually taken uh, family trips away just recently. You yourselves, are you planning a trip? 
that was actually delayed by the pandemic. So was there one that you were really, really, really going to go to uh, that now somewhat has has been delayed? So uh, let me know, uh, 2101, are you about to pick up on one of those trips that was like, well, you know what, we were all set to go to... I don't know, where can you go? Machu Picchu. And then we weren't, and now we are. So uh, let me know, 2101, uh, if that's been good or is, uh, uh, is is that available to you now. Well, uh, we go to China uh, now where protests against strict COVID-19 restrictions continue. You might have seen the footage there uh, with us uh, from amongst it is Patrick Falk, who is uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, kia ora, Patrick, how are you? Just wondering, um, where are the main protests? And also, are these protests, are they getting smaller or are they growing in number? Uh, well, thanks for having me on the show, Nathan. Yeah, it has been changing dramatically over the past 24 hours. These protests were really triggered by an apartment fire in Urumqi. That's the capital of Xinjiang province in which 10 people were killed, at least 10 people were killed. And many people believe that COVID curbs in China may have delayed rescue efforts. So that's what's prompted this huge outpouring of anger and there have been protests taking place in Chengdu, in Wuhan, notably in Shanghai and Beijing. And, you know, it's really snowballed into something more than just uh, anger over COVID curbs and the zero COVID policy. You know, people have latched onto this and used it as a reason for expressing their grievances over a number of issues, including censorship and uh, what many people see as diminishing civil liberties as well. But, you know, the scale and the spread of these protests has really been unprecedented, certainly under President Xi Jinping's leadership of China. I'm just wondering about this. They, they, they seem hell-bent on trying to get to COVID zero, which I, I think leaves them the last planet, uh, last country on the planet. I'd, I don't know if you do know, but I'd like to know, is there any idea why or any theories why they're trying to get there? And is there any sign that the restrictions might soften? Yeah, well, I mean, look, on a practical side, you have to remember that, you know, a large part of China's population Uh, still hasn't been vaccinated. And of course, China's relied on domestically produced uh, vaccines, which are less effective than some of the mRNA vaccines, for instance, that we're using in many Western countries. So there is a sort of practical element to to it. And uh, they are concerned that if there is a big spread of the virus, then we could be talking about a really huge number of deaths when you look at sort of all the comparable data. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's difficult to say uh, why they're sort of continuing along this route and not sort of investing more on healthcare infrastructure. Yes, they are sort of looking at ways of easing up the policy. And up up until the protest took place just a few days ago, they had actually been trying to uh, refine and make adjustments to the strategy. That hasn't been working though, and particular with particularly with the sort of latest variants of the disease, you know, cases have been ticking higher. We've been seeing record numbers, record daily cases of infection in China for several consecutive days. Uh, Now the National Health Commission has come out to say that they are going to go on this uh, vaccination drive and boost vaccinations among the elderly population in particular, the particularly uh, vulnerable groups. And uh, as we know, there are Uh, only 65% of people aged 80 and above are vaccinated in China. So this is 
part of the key to sort of moving towards moving away from zero COVID. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's hard to say where it goes from here, but possibly this is a sort of first step towards opening up. Patrick, um, I just want to get back to where you are in Hong Kong. Thank you very much for that explanation too. I hadn't, hadn't considered either of those points. Um, I just want to know, you know, obviously we've seen a lot of the protests. I wonder what the situation is like you and does uh, is like around you. And does it appear that the, the authorities are beginning to get on top of these protests? Yeah, well, look, as you ask about Hong Kong, it's certainly something that's really struck a chord with a lot of people here and has brought back a lot of memories of the 2019 protest movement as well. And in fact, there was a vigil held in in Hong Kong on, on Monday night to uh, commemorate the victims of uh, the, who died in the fire in Arumchi and also to show support and solidarity uh, w- with the protesters in, in China as well. You know, I spoke to one of the people that turned up at a vigil and uh, he told, told me that, you know, many people in Hong Kong are, you know, it's made them feel that there's a connection with the people in the mainland because during 20, 2019, a lot of people on the mainland just saw the protesters here as being rioters and people who uh, resorted to violence to try and um, resolve sort of issues that were long standing in Hong Kong. Now they feel that people on the mainland are starting to recognize what they were fighting for and that they were really fighting for, uh, you know, civil liberties and and, and freedoms. Uh, You know, in terms of whether or not this is uh, going to uh, affect how the government handles the situation in, in China, well, look, security has been tightened up considerably in the last 24 hours already, there's been a heavy police presence in Beijing patrolling the streets. There have been barricades and roadblocks put around streets in Shanghai, particularly around Wolomuchi Road, which is where one of the most significant protests has been taking place. Uh, so there really has been a clampdown and the mood definitely has shifted. And there was always a big question about whether or not these protests would gather momentum. For the time being, it does seem as though they are dying down. Mm. Patrick, thank you very much for your time, sir. There's uh, Patrick Fock there with a a great explanation of what is going on in uh, Hong Kong. And I know that they're also uh, wondering, too, the police do seem to be showing up at uh, protesters' houses just after rallies. So there's concern there that perhaps they're using facial recognition uh, technology. Uh, to uh, further those efforts of being able to track those protesters down. It is uh, just about 20 past five. And you're listening to First Up with myself, Nathan Rarity, here on RNZ National. Coming up, we go into uh, pretty much the securest dairy that we believe uh, in New Zealand, but you should hear the incredible lengths they have gone through. And... It's field days. It's back and we'll be there live. It is, uh, whoops, hang on, what's happened here? There we go. It's uh, 5.23. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National. This week on Trade Me, Nadia Lim wants you to smell like you are farm fresh and one of the most modern of Auckland's homes with views of mangroves to volcanoes. But first, producer Jeremy Parkinson talks with Ruby Topsand from Trade Me about an autographed piano, which is part of New Zealand's recent music history. Really exciting listing here for any 660 fans out there. You might recall earlier this year, 
the very start of this year, uh, there was a concert at Eden Park where 660 performed and sold it out. Incredible moment while the rest of the world was still certainly not having concerts in New Zealand was. And this piano is a piece of that history, really. It's a signed piano used in that performance, signed by every member of 660, as well as a guest a guest signature there too and it is it also has a little blurb actually printed on the piano which which says a little bit of history about the event itself which is pretty special and outlines that uh, Stephen Beaver Donald's uh, signature is on there as well so pretty special currently sitting at 3100 but only two bids so far so I suspect lots of bidding to be done there and it's not just some shonky old piano it's a it looks like a brand new piano and a really good brand with Bernstein brand raising money for Can- the cancer research trust it is indeed a wonderful cause to raise um, money for there and yeah what it just what a special piece of history in so many ways to have in your house so hopefully this ends up in a special place somewhere and and can be enjoyed for many years to come and when does this auction finish closes on friday uh, at 5 p.m so might be one to watch from your desk as you wind up the week Uh, now nadia lim's doing something wacky for charity tell us about her new fragrance it's fresh from the farm apparently Yes, this one is cool, all right. So this is the collector's edition of Nadia's new fragrance, Ur de Dag, which is actually made from distilled royal burn sheep wool dags and captures the smell of the high country farm wool shed in a fragrance. So this being the very first bottle is sitting at 465, which is quite a lot more than they usually retail for. 38 bids so far, getting lots of attention, 350 watch lists. So this one actually closes tonight, Wednesday night, and we will be watching this one closely to see much how much it goes for raising money for another incredible organisation, the Rural Support Trust. Yeah, it's good to smell nice, I guess. Um, I'm not sure which box that ticks. But uh, yeah, no, that sounds like a good one. Um, if you want to go out in the town smelling like a farmer, maybe this is what the, the Young um, Farmer of the Year contest smells like, this stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe. And I do I do like in, in their listing description, they suggest that it might be a good thing to pop in the bathroom um, as a bathroom fragrance, which is, why not, you know? Yeah, go, go crazy. Um, yep, so that, there you go. You can smell like a farmer. No worries this week on uh, Trade Me. Um, this week's property, I've been thinking about this a lot since you sent me the link earlier today. It reminds me like of a David Attenborough documentary about mm-hmm. Bengal tigers. This is a place in Auckland. It's one of the flashiest houses I've ever seen, but it's got this like tiger-eyed view of the local mangroves, which is not something you associate with flash houses a lot. Some people wouldn't appreciate that as a view. Um, You know, it's not Waikiki Beach. Yeah, it's kind of got that view of the mangroves, but then out into the city there as well. So you do, you, you know, you've got a bit of a variety in what you look at which is nice. So you've got that private deck that overlooks Hobson Bay and then you can kind of see beyond there into um, well, if, the city. Well, if, if our listeners know Hobson Bay, you get a good view of the train heading east. Um, well, I guess that's... Uh, that, that, And, you know, if you're a Harry Potter fan, that might be something you, you're into. But it does have spectacular views of the city and harbour. I'm just pointing it out. <laughs> It does. It's got, you know, it's got it all. It's just got um, coastal, it's got urban, 
it's a real mix. And it's incredible um, so, to look at from the road. Uh, if you have a look at the, um, the, the, the maps and the, and the photos on the site, uh, it, it's actually a, an incredible house to see from the road and an incredible front gate. It is. It's quite angular, isn't it? It's really interesting the outside compared with the inside. You might be kind of surprised at the sort of like warmth of the inside, but it is a beautiful spot. Great outdoor living area. And as we've just outlined to the extreme, incredible view. Yeah, I, I, the, the view of the city. I think the Auckland city has a great profile and you're getting it side on from this place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like take a step back and look at it differently. That was Trade Me's Ruby Topsand. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. The last of them. The very last of the Novembers. Here we go. Happy 57th birthday to you, Ben Stiller. I know. Is Zoolander still the best one of his? Possibly. Ben Stiller. Maybe meet the parents, I'm not sure. Uh, it's also a happy 85th birthday to Ridley Scott. Now, yesterday we were talking about um, good film directors. Ridley Scott has just an entire cache of incredible films. Uh, I, I thought perhaps these three, possibly his most famous, Alien, Blade Runner, Thelma and Louise... I'm sure if you're a Ridley Scott fan, uh, you, there'll be other ones you go, no, what about that one? I just thought those, those were quite big and well-known. Ridley Scott, who who was it? The other one, they used to call him Diddley Squat, which used just to annoy uh, Ridley when he did him there. On this day in 1858, John Landis Mason went, I'm sick of having to put wax around my jars to seal them. And he invented the Mason jar and uh, patented it on this day in 1858. Just a little shout-out to all the bottlers out there. Uh, On this day in 1979, Pink Floyd released their 11th studio album, The Wall, very popular in New Zealand. It was the top-selling album in New Zealand in 1980. And on this day in 1954, Anne Hodges, asleep on her couch. Crash! Boom! Bam! 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 Ouch! She's got bruising. Why? She was lying there in her Alabama home, and a meteorite fragment went through the roof bounced off a wall, off the radiogram and hit her, bruising her. She was 34 years old. Also, another fragment was found by a farmer the next day. So what he did was, with the publicity, he took it around and he was actually able to sell the fragment. He bought a house and a car. So Anne Hodges goes, great, I'm going to get this too. Gets into a big fight with her landlord about who actually owns the meteorite and by the time they decided it, which meant that Hodge had to pay her landlord $500, a lot of money in those days, um, uh, no one cared about the uh, meteorite fragment anymore and parole Anne just ended up with bruises and a loss of $500. And those are things that happened on the 30th of November. It's Anzaki who's with me. Kia ora, how are you? Morena, very well, thank you. You're watching the football? No, no, no. I'm, I'm dedicated to work. What do you mean? What do you mean? Here? I'm focused. I'm a, I'm laser focused right dedicated, now. Dedicated, hardworking employee. Yeah, that's what we get. Setting an example for us uh, all. Thank you very much. That's what we get Barry to do. Now, Cyber Monday sales in, in America. There was always this horrible footage of people running in and over the top of each other to buy televisions in the last few years. But cost of living, inflation. I'm sure then um, that that means that what no one was really going shopping, or were they? Yeah, tough times, inflation. Um, yeah, right. Uh, so record Cyber Monday in the US is what's come out. So uh, it's being labelled as the biggest US online shopping day in history uh, yesterday, so over in the US. 
Uh, sales hit 11.3 billion US dollars. This is just crazy numbers. Uh, that's a near 6% increase, uh, according to Adobe Analytics. Toys were the hottest products on the day, uh, with online sales going up nearly eightfold compared to an average day in October. And I've got a list of what's hot at the moment. Uh, so we've got Pokemon cards, uh, Hot Wheels, PlayStation Hot Wheels. 5s. Hot Wheels still a thing. It's um, good they're making the comeback, the Hot Wheels. And they're always really a lot of fun to set up on Christmas morning. And oh, you'd sick of them by about two o'clock. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it's always it's heartening. I think because we've got uh, you know we've got Playstations and uh, you know your iPads and things. So it's good hmm. that kids are still playing with the uh, traditional toys. I guess. Uh, Look, PlayStation 5 still very hot uh, still. Um, we've got smart TVs and Apple AirPods still in very high demand. Uh, do any of those make the Christmas wish list, Nathan? Oh, I'm sure they make a Christmas wish list. And, and um, yeah, I'm sure they make a you're not going to get it, uh, Chris, uh, you know, Christmas list. But it's good to have dreams and aspirations, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm... I, you know, we can't we can't complain by getting some uh, Hot Wheels for Christmas. I no, think. no, I think they're great. They are, they're very cool. And also, too, now this is interesting. And I'll, actually, I want I think we should actually have a look at this. The different sorts of hydrogen being produced. Um, I think last time we spoke green hydrogen. One of our listeners wrote in, and it was it was really interesting uh, to get into that. And we should delve into it deeper. But tell me about Meridian Energy choosing a partner for their green hydrogen project. Yeah, interesting project. This has been in the works for well over a year now. So Meridian Energy has chosen an Australian uh, Australian resource firm, Woodside Energy, as its preferred partner to develop a green hydrogen project in Southland. So green hydrogen uh, is hydrogen generated by renewable energy or from low carbon power. The most common form of hydrogen we have at the moment is uh, what's called grey hydrogen, uh, which is created from natural gas or methane. So uh, the production of green hydrogen and uh, ammonia uh, from renewable energy in the South Island has been touted. um, uh, Whether or not the TY Point aluminium smelter closes after 2024, because that's the major uh, energy drawer in that part of the country, at the moment, now Woodside Energy uh, was shortlisted along with a company called uh, Fortescue Future Industries to put forward their proposals. And Meridian say uh, Woodside was chosen because of an established uh, track record. Uh, now, Contact Energy, one of our other big power companies in New Zealand, originally joined Meridian in investigating green hydrogen, but they've now uh, decided they're going to opt out. Uh, but they are still going going to uh, supply electricity to the project, so they're still keeping some sort of involvement. Uh, now, Meridian and Woodside, um, they've been joined by the Japanese giant Mitsui to develop the potential market for ammonia. Uh, Mitsui is the largest importer of ammonia into Japan. So the three companies will now start in the engineering design for the project and it could be one of the first uh, large-scale green hydrogen plants in the world. So it's a very interesting project here. It is indeed. Thank you very much. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. If you take your New Zealand dollar shopping, you can buy the following 
dollars or currency I should say 62.14 US cents 92.52 Australian cents 60.10 euro cents 51.90 British pence 4.45 yuan and 86.20 Japanese yen we've got a message in here from Bill Uh, Bill says hi have watched every World Cup soccer match so far great venues all sold out incredible atmosphere at every game fabulous soccer I've done a complete U-turn RE staging the event in Qatar they're doing a stunning job as hosts let's see what happens there RE Rainbow writes after the event the colour and the joy of fans uh, that they are generating is bound to be infectious fantastic well with us now uh, he's also been watching every World Cup game Barry Guy I thought Barry you need some football-y type music to talk football and here it is what do you think great it's all on it is so yeah. tell us what's happened so okay. far this morning one of the okay, groups this decided is, these are the first uh, games in uh, the final uh, group game so both games from each group have been played at the same time uh, and uh, at the moment it's all changing in group A the Netherlands are in front of Qatar by two goals to nil so they're going to finish top of the group but it's uh, yeah, all happening in the other game Ecuador and Senegal winner takes all really in that uh, game who also qualifies for the uh, next round. Uh, Senegal went up 1-0 early, and uh, they had leapfrog up into second place, but uh, then uh, Ecuador replied, and then Senegal have just scored again. So it's now 2-1 to Senegal over Ecuador. So Senegal, as I say, would then uh, jump up into second place Yes, behind the Netherlands, and uh, they would qualify also. They'd be the uh, first African team. I, I quite oh, like... Not, yeah. I quite like how they do these, Barry, um, just for the listeners here. So you've got your three games in the pool matches, and I quite like how they do the one right. But your third game, all yes. of you are playing at the exact same time, so there's no... Yeah, you can't they play the old draw or yeah, can't something for that. boring like that. None yeah. of the old jiggery-pokery, as they yeah. used to say. So uh, it's, uh, it's all very exciting. I, <laughs> you look at the crowd, you know, and one's elated, and then a goal gets scored, and everyone is all doom and gloom, and it's, uh, it's wonderful sport. Oh, day. true, that's right. This is the bit where they employ the special camera person to just pick out people that are crying in the crowd. Yeah, and they're with it? their flags around yeah. them or over their heads or whatever. So, yeah, that uh, yeah, that's all on South America against Africa and that one. But what about the, group so B. the Group B games? Wow, here's some uh, a couple of grudgy style matches. England, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> England topped the group with four points. Iran three, USA two, Wales one. And this morning, Iran play uh, USA. You can tag that however you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Wales England is uh, also on the same time. Uh, they don't have a sort of a great rivalry, but it's a derby, and it's all exciting. True. So England, uh, for all of those people out there that are hoping that they'll do well, uh, they'll go through as long as they avoid a four goal defeat. So uh, I can't see that happening. No, I can't see and that. Uh, finish top of the group um, with a win. And of course, if you finish top of your group, it does mean that you'll play the a second place team in one of the other groups. So in theory, it would be slightly easier. So that's why you win it, want to win it, uh, finish top of your group. So yeah, Iran, USA, again, they've got everything to play for because uh, a win in that game and you will go through. So um, USA, they held England. Um, 
and Iran, of course. They had a win over, must have been Wales. Mm-hmm. I'm forgetting here. So uh, there's a lot to play. I, I'm going to watch, you know, I, although I have blimmin' four TVs, I think I'm going to watch the Iran-USA <laughs> game. That'll be the most uh, um, I think it will. exciting one. Remember, Iran could have won that game against Wales about 5-0. They looked incredible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They hit the post quite a few times too. But I thought uh, one of the most incredible moments was the, the press conference with the, the USA football team and uh, the, the American football coach being asked by an Iranian, uh, uh, sorry, Iranian journalist about, have you spoken with President Biden yet and asked him to move the warships? <laughs> and as I heard an American journalist saying, it's pretty amazing that that guy had in President Biden's meetings, Kamala Harris, the, the chief of staff, the football team coach, uh, and uh, the, the secretary of state uh, there as well. So, yeah, it's, um, it's all to play for, isn't it? I think a lot of Americans quite enjoying this and heading out to a bar because they can chant USA without looking horrible. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's all very exciting. The winners, you know... Um who knows? They, they might get some Hot Wheels or something yeah, like they that. Oh, You're very excited about those, aren't I you? I know. I like just remember the You've big got orange track. Though, haven't you? I think so. There's no chance of uh, <laughs> you know you getting those. So, oh, if it was on the PlayStation, uh, the junior one would love it. I'll tell you that. Right. Yes, thank you very much for your time. Barry Guy there, who, um, yeah, we do. We just set him onto it. We say, Barry, here's a whole bunch of TVs. Don't look away. And he covers it all for you so that we can bring you the Football World Cup here at First Up. 20 to 6, I'm Nathan Rarere here at RNZ National. We're going to uh, go to field days soon, because field days, it's great to have it back, but also we're going to speak to an award-winning fencer. How good's this? Also, we're going to hear from, uh, it's not Fort Apache, the Bronx, but it sounds close, the most secure dairy in New Zealand. You should hear uh, what they have there. The professionals of Morning Report are up after six for a quick preview of what's happening on the flagship news programme. It's Guy and Espinar. Kia ora, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, we are going to be looking at the story of these uh, parents who have this baby who's in urgent need of heart surgery and won't allow the, um, or don't want to have blood from people vaccinated yeah. to be used in the operation. We're going to speak to a bioethics person about this. What are the circumstances where parents can, can have this uh, control or not? Because I suppose we've heard this previously haven't we on on religious grounds of I mean you know going back decades haven't we of oh people yeah that didn't blood, want blood transfusions is a, is a common one yeah. um, so in what circumstances do we, do we allow this mm. and quite a fascinating uh, court case by the sounds of it from Tefatuora mm. to try to get uh, some control of this so we'll, we'll be we'll be looking at that we're also talking to the chief economist of ANZ they're predicting now house prices to drop twenty two percent from their uh, peak last year so we'll be looking at that um, also interviewing. Uh, Chris Luxon this morning. He wants the retirement age to lift to 67 over time, and they are uh, keeping that policy, which which is interesting given the disadvantage, the lower life expectancies of Pacifica Maori in, in New Zealand, and also um, you know manual labour is what what how, how you manage that in yes. terms of an equity uh, an equity issue. So we'll be speaking to Christopher Luxon between 7:30 and 8 this morning. That'll be very interesting there as well. Now you though, as as well as doing this, because we like to you know put you to work here, get in there, guy, and do that as well. You've also been making tell us about this, this documentary you've done on New Zealand drug laws? Yeah, so uh, Wasted uh, screens tonight on TV1 actually at 8.45pm so yes. we, uh, uh, me and Cole Easton Farrelly have been working 
away on this, chipping away on it for for a while. Um, and it looks at New Zealand joining the war on drugs 50 years ago and how mm. that's going for us, um, and how a lot of the rest of the world is now treating this as a health issue rather than a criminal issue, whereas New Zealand is still locking people up for drug use. Is it still us in the UK? It well, just pr- seems like pretty we're much. the last I mean, two. Yeah, I mean, Nixon started this in 71, right. um, declaring declaring war on, on, on drug use. But as you know, many states in the US have got very liberal attitudes now and have mm. legalised uh, cannabis and, and some other drugs, and many drugs are decriminalised yeah. throughout Portugal, even in Australia, across the ditch. Um, you know, you get traffic fines if you're caught with, with these drugs rather than running around uh, throwing people in jail. So, mm. yeah, that's uh, that's screening tonight. And um, it'll be on our, our website too at RNZ after that. Are you an enthusiastic watcher of your own work or are you a hide behind the couch? I'm a hide behind the couch yeah. guy at this point. <laughs> you know, you, you, you work on these things and you put a lot of effort into it and you've seen it so many times, you're like, oh my God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I said, oh, just tell me when it's finished. Did yeah. it, was it okay? <laughs> yeah, All right, I'll come back in from the kitchen now. There yeah. we go. And stay off Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Always stay off the Twitter. Thank you very much. Uh, and Espinada, yes. So 8.45 uh, tonight. Night there on um, TV1, New Zealand's Drug Laws documentary. Well, the number of um, dairies being raided, small business owners are taking extraordinary steps to keep themselves safe. So we visited one which is probably got to be as secure as they come. It's the Cedar Park Superette in Auckland's Wattle Downs. uh, it was where former police minister Stuart Nash chose to launch a $1.9 million initiative to double the number of fog cannons in small businesses back in the year 2020. Now, we wanted to find out how the dairy has been getting on since that announcement, so our producer, Matthew Tunison, caught up with owner Udai Patel and found that the dairy is now pretty much the Fort Knox of suburban retail. And is that what all dairies are going to need to look like now? We got 16 camera running here. One six. One six. 16 wow. camera running here. Inside and out. Inside the shop, mostly 16. Three outside. This is the number plate camera. So let's just let's just describe this. So we've got a row of shop, inc- including Uday's shop, the yeah. Cedar Park Superette. Yeah. On the corner of the roof is a is a pole sticking up with three cameras on it. We've got five cameras. There five. Four before there, one on the other shop. On the other shop. On the and other side. And those are the number plate cameras. Number plate so cameras. So anytime, anytime. And those cameras connected with the police. And Uday, just just for our listeners, obviously can't see. Yeah. Just describe the um, caging you've got here because it's very yeah, significant. Very strong caging. Yeah. You can see the caging here. Surrounding the front counter, till and tobacco cabinet is a row of formidable metal bars and a lattice of thick wire to keep any would-be robbers out. The area's got a hefty steel door which locks from the inside. And that's it. Wow. And this one and this till. The yes. till are all bolted. Last bolted. time they took the till away. So th- this one is bolted, can't move it. So they can't get Solid, that can't move it. And we don't keep much money in there nowadays. Yes. Right. And we got fork cannon, we got button here, yeah. we got button here. What's the button do? Button press it, and that's it, start. So within reaching distance of either arm, you could, either, you could yeah, activate you can do the this one. You can do this one, you can do this one. And if you're running away, yeah. then we got another uh, switch the at the back. Uday then takes me to the area out back. There he can block himself off from the dairy with another steel door. And there's a fog cannon button there too, so he can blast any robbers in the shop. The back door is protected by thick steel bars that wouldn't look out of place at Paremaremo prison. Just like a prison, you know. Like, <laughs> And look at oh that at goodness, the back too. Uday. And 
Have you got this gate? You can't open it. Even the back courtyard is completely surrounded by metal bars to prevent anyone breaking in. No one's tried to get in that way yet, but Uday says it's better to be safe than sorry. Don't do it after they do it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm prepared before they come and do something. He's also got a heavy roller door at the front of the shop to prevent anyone breaking in at night. When we close the roller door, yeah. we can lock from inside too. Okay. Sometimes what they do from outside, they try to, five, six people come yes. and they try to open the roller door. So we can lock it from here and there is the lock. Okay. And also look at the bollards. They're the biggest bollards I've seen, well over a metre tall and about 20 centimetres in diameter, bolted to the ground. Uday recalls one close call with a robber when his wife was working in the shop. Some guy came in, he had a screwdriver or something, and then he came there, and I got the video here, and um, he tried to go inside. Then my wife said, oh, it looks stranger, why he's going there? Then he called me, yelled me, Uday, Uday. And then I came out from there, suddenly he saw me, Yeah. and suddenly he ran away. And oh. I tried to catch him in the small fridge there. Yeah. He pulled the small fridge and fell on my feet, and then he ran away. I was hurt, but a bit of, bit of cramp on it. And um, Uday, uh, the, the reason I am here really is because I read about you back in 2020. The police minister, then police minister yeah, Stuart yeah, Nash, yeah, came yeah, yeah, to yeah, announce. Yeah. No, that time they were showing how this one works because we camp. went inside. Yeah, we went inside and we turned it on, and the, the smoke came out straight away and after a few minutes you can't see anything in the mm. shop so this is very very good like safer and good for the dairy people if you turn it on the burglars run away they can't and see anything. No, can't see anything he's only had to use his fog cannon once and says it was very effective somebody came three people came at three o'clock afternoon, afternoon afternoon p.m and school time that time i straight away run away I went to my house, that's my house. Yes. Look. I went to my house and I got another remote control there for the fog cannon. Yeah. So I went up, straight up, pressed it. Pressed it. Yeah, and all the smoke came out. And they were there for about a couple of minutes or three minutes. And, and they just, they just the took off. Well. Yeah, you can see everything. They took off. So it's very effective. Very effective, very effective. That day it saved us. Wow. I tell you, because that day they were taking out the cigarette, you can see in the camera, yeah. you can see in the video, that they were taking out all the cigarette and, they said, and suddenly the smoke can zuck, make a noise and suddenly the shop is full of smoke. Uday, your, your shop is seriously secure. I haven't seen such an no, impressive no. security operation before. I you, I but I, I, just, just tell me, is it because you're, you're very, very frightened of what might happen to yourself or your family? Like, like got to get ready for everything, the way people are stealing here and there and ram reading so i don't want those trouble they can have a hammer or something they can break the glass this and that anytime but if you have a little bit make it a bit safer more than a lot of people have small bollards mm. no roller doors you know but i have roller doors bollards and have you seen my security inside all caging and a till being bolted everywhere mm. so uh, this sort of thing we got to do to uh, save our life to be safe sleep uh, we sleep next to, we, got, we live next door. And at night... Do you have the fog cannon button close by? Yeah, just, just close by, close by, close by. And we're, just we're next to my bed. It is 7 to 6. We had hoped to get to field days, but uh, there's obviously field days preps going on, so hopefully we can uh, maybe do so tomorrow. Uh, but it does mean we can play you this bit of music. Yes, their beautiful Christmas tune, Prokofiev's Troika, 
and others will be played live this weekend and next by the Auckland Philharmonic Orchestra, or Philharmonia Orchestra, uh, with their interactive family concert series called APO for Kids Christmas. So these concerts are designed especially for the little ones. They're full of Yuletide favourites and audience members get the chance to walk through the orchestra while they're playing. All sounds very cool. I asked APO's Thomas Hamill what to expect. Imagine you're at a beach and it's full of Christmas spirit. We're basically going to fill everyone's Christmas bucket full of Christmas beach spirit sand. They're going to see a full 72-piece orchestra, probably a secret appearance by Father Christmas himself, presents on stage, a shiny, sparkly Christmas tree. There's going to be Frosty the Snowman, special guest appearances from young trumpeters from across Aotearoa. So it's everything you can imagine Christmas to be and more. I just imagined... But with an orchestra. Yeah, I just imagined as you were saying that, I thought, I was trying to think, what would Santa play? And I thought, mm, violent. I thought, timpani. Santa looks like a timpani to me. I would love it. I would say tuba, but I would love it if Santa played the timpani. That would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Giving it a decent old dum dum dum. There we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Up and down the roof with his timpani. Brilliant. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you know, like, I mean, obviously there's been little chance for orchestras to play to, to decent audiences over the last few years, yeah. right? As we know with, with what's yeah. going on. So, tell me about the excitement of planning this together and then also just the excitement of all the rehearsals to go because there's a lot of people to to organise? Well, our um, APO for Kids series is a, a Christmas and autumn series that we do annually, and they have been very disrupted by COVID. We were very lucky we were able to do one earlier this year. And actually, you'll be surprised that rehearsal, we get one rehearsal for this, which is two and a half hours to pull wow. everything together. And that, yeah, just one, because the orchestra is so busy because we do concerts every week. that And they're so professional that they have the music down, they know what's going on, particularly Christmas music that we play annually. So we, we have one rehearsal, two and a half hours to pull all these different elements together, and then boom, it just happens. One element that we are delighted to be bringing back is at the end of the concert, the Tamariki who come to see the show will be able to walk through the orchestra as they play some special Christmas marches. So they'll be able to get really up close with the musicians, and that wasn't possible because of COVID hmm. uh, when we did it earlier this year. And so we're really happy that that's able to to come back but it's been a tough two years in the orchestral sector i have to say is there a star instrument that the kids always head for <laughs> oh well they always on stage in the walkthrough they always love the harp and i think really? it's just because it's so beautiful yeah they love the harp there's you know people take selfies obviously as they walking through this we've got a lot of people to get through so we're trying to hurry people through and they always stop to take selfies and it's always by the harp and I just think it's because it's such a wonderful instrument that people don't have access to you know readily you know you see a lot of violins you probably see cellos you know you see flutes but the harp is such a ubiquitous sort of instrument in the orchestra that, that people love seeing that but this year we have our principal bass trombonist Tim Sutton who is going to be dressed as Frosty the Snowman. I won't give any more away than that. So I'm wondering if this year it might be the bass trombone yeah. that wins the award for the most photos. Actually, I was just thinking, Thomas, at where I live in Teatatu Peninsula, sometimes out the front of our supermarket, we've got a kid on a harp that busks. And you're right, I'm, I'm just always... Really? Yeah, and I'm always wanting to drop some money. And you're right, there's just something beautiful. You just feel beautiful and graceful shopping, pushing your trolley when you've got the a harp. harp. Yeah. <laughs> 
Hey. <laughs> I would love to be followed around countdown. It's with so a good. It's like I I've would just, love that. That would be brilliant. Yeah, you walk out thinking I've just paid way too much for onions, but I feel graceful <laughs> because I, I've got yeah, this yeah. going. So, how long does this concert last for? Basically, the whole thing is an hour all up, and there are concerts at ten in the morning and half past eleven in the Altair Centre on the third of December, and then we repeat the whole show for the North Shore and the Bruce Mason on the 18th of December, same times. So it's just an hour. There are bean bags all over the floor, so it's not seated. Kids can run around, they can scream. There'll be lots of kind of interactivity, shaking keys, singing, all that kind of stuff. It's going to be a lot of fun. You know, about what age? Because there might be a lot of people listening going, love to take the kids or the grandkids or the nieces or the nephews or something like that. About what age are we looking at? Well, we say it's for preschoolers from 0 to 6, but honestly, I know of 10 and 11-year-olds that, particularly the Christmas show, because it's just so full of Christmas spirit, that it enlivens even the the most cynical of a 10-year-old's heart. You know, anyone really can, can get involved. That's Thomas Hamill from the APO. APO for Kids Christmas runs for the next two weekends in Auckland. Great to uh, get some uh, information in from the audience. Claire, who's a film buff and a location scout there from um, Napier in Ahuriri. Morning, Nathan. Fun fact from Ahuriri. Ridley Scott came here and he shot this ad for a tech company, Orange, using Art Deco buildings from the Daily Telegraph and the Ministry Works buildings as well as locations. There we go. I love how our audience does that. Also, Joe, Joe says, yep, uh, my husband and I were about to move to London for our middle-aged OE. We had the house rented and all sorts. All our flights, of course, were cancelled a couple of weeks out from departure date. We've rerouted ourselves in Aotearoa. So no plans to do the big OE, but maybe a modest holiday to somewhere warm next winter to celebrate our 30th anniversary. Oh, good for you, Joe. Yes, Morning Report is next with Guyon and Corin from all of us here at First Up. Do have a wonderful day. We'll be back in your ears. Ah, poor, poor.